welcome to another episode of the Reformation Roundtable podcast. My name is Joe Stout, and this podcast is a ministry of Christ Covenant Church in Lewis County, Washington. During each episode, you will discover the sermons, exhortations, discussions, and interviews from our various weekly gatherings. Christ Covenant Church is a historically reformed and evangelical church that has been serving the greater Centralia Chehalis area since May of 2021. We meet for worship each Lord's Day to sing psalms and hymns, confess our historic faith, hear the word faithfully proclaimed, and celebrate together the Lord's Supper. Throughout the week, we go out into the world to build the kingdom of Christ right here in Lewis County. If this sounds like a vision for you, we would love to have you join us. Head on over to lewiscounty.church, that is lewiscounty.church, where you will find a calendar of events as well as current times and locations for worship. Please enjoy the following audio. Our text this morning comes from the book of Colossians, and um, I printed the bulletins, and I printed a typo. It's chapter 3, verses 18, through uh, chapter 4, verses 6. And I would remind you, these are the very words of God. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to our Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be grace, uh, always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, you have given us your word so that we might find out what pleases you. You have given us the word, Jesus Christ, that we might be equipped to please you. We ask that your word would penetrate deep into our hearts and change us, that we might live out the mission of the church to spread the gospel to all nations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It's wonderful to see you all here this morning in our new location, and because we have many preachers fill our pulpits, um, it can feel like we don't necessarily always preach exegetically. We don't always go uh, through an entire passage because we have so many people preaching exegetically. I have not preached since August, and so I am not picking this passage for some ulterior motive. This happens to be where I am as I have been preaching through the book of Colossians. And 
I, I say that just so nobody um, thinks I'm going to a controversial passage for the fun of it. We preach exegetically because we want to um, be taught and be um, informed by and shaped by the whole counsel of God. We are not, a, we are not ashamed of, any of, of anything that's in this book, but we also want to use um, all of uh, the, our time in the pulpit here with grace seasoned with salt. And so that's why we are now in the passage of Colossians that deals specifically with wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. Um, but uh, before we get into that particular text, let's just back up since we don't get it, don't get the book of Colossians every week, and it's been since August. Allow me a few minutes here to, to set the stage for where Paul has come from as he lands in this particular text. Paul has been speaking to us on the majesty and preeminence of Jesus and why his majesty and preeminence changes everything. Because Christ is captain, all his enemies, and therefore all our enemies, have been disarmed and and debased. We are no longer, for saints, we are no longer held in bondage to the principalities and powers. Because Christ has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Christ came as the very image of the invisible God. Okay, we, we can't see God, but we can see Jesus, or we will see him face to face. He came as that very image of the invisible God and was very God of very God. And he has been set as the cornerstone of this new created world that we are in. He's the new Adam, and we are in the new creation now. That's not to say that there, isn't, there, that we're, that there won't be an eschatological end where the new heavens and the new earth are fully united, but we are in a new created world because everything in the entire cosmos has been built upon and is now based from his newly given rule and authority. Everything changed when he rose from the dead. And this is why Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, this is, of course, true of the believer's life and his heart, but it's also true that all of creation is being transformed with the passing away of the old covenant and the arrival of the new covenant. Paul tells us in, in, in Colossians in verse, one, uh, verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. This builds upon the image uh, of Jesus used uh, during his ministry to describe the kingdom of God. You'll remember that he describes the kingdom of God as leaven. Just as leaven works its way through the whole loaf, the gospel is slowly working its way unto the ends of the earth and conquering hearts and minds for Christ. In chapter 1, uh, in verse 20, Paul tells us that Christ has come, once again thinking about creation, he has come that he might reconcile all things unto himself, things in heaven and things on earth. Now he's able to do this, Paul tells us, because he has made peace through the blood of his cross. Now this reality has massive implications for us as Christians, because Christ is captain We must not be deceived by persuasive words that seek to get us to go back 
to our old lives. We're going to be tempted to go back to our old lives. We can't. The old is gone. Don't go looking for it. You were buried in a baptism that marked the death of your old life. Don't try and return to it. That's what the Old Testament, that's, the, that's one of the main themes of the Old Testament, was the Jews in the wilderness complaining that they had it better when they were slaves. Paul is saying that's not true. You have it better now. So Paul says, be steadfast in your faith. Don't be deceived into thinking that you can make yourself closer to God by embracing asceticism. Asceticism is, is severe treatment of your flesh. It's abstaining from certain foods and drinks. Uh, observing special uh, fasts, um, worshiping angels. None of that stuff will get you any closer to the Father because you are a saint. You have sanctuary access purchased for you by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that makes you acceptable to God, not your works. So now that you've been made acceptable, the natural question to ask is, what next? How should I then live Paul tells us that in chapter 3. He says, you've got to put to death your old man in which are our old desires. And then he lists them. Things like fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And then he tells us, he says, you can't just put those to death and leave, those, leave it to death. Just like in our Heidelberg Catechism, it says, we don't just not hate our neighbor We are to love our neighbor. So when we put off the old man, we must put on something new. We should put on the new man, which is Christ. We should put on the the things of Christ. To put on Christ means to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, being peaceful with one another. This includes everyone now, not just our families although our families are important. This includes everybody, not just our tribes or our people, although our tribes and people are important. This is for everyone bearing the name of Christ. There is no distinction for those who are found in Christ. And Paul is saying this so that the Colossians would know that no longer can the Jews look down their noses at the Gentiles, and no longer can the Gentiles look at the Jews um, and despise them. The free cannot despise the slaves. Being a Scythian, a barbarian, a Greek are no longer reasons, at least not valid reasons, for division. Because Christ is is all and in all who have put on Christ, have put on the new man. Babel is over. The curse of Babel, of the division of of nations, was officially ended on Pentecost. When all of these believers went out into the city preaching the gospel in the tongues that people could hear and understand. And the gospel went forth from that. Babel is over. The division of nations is over. And now that we are in Christ, um, nation is no longer a valid reason for dividing. And then finally, Paul tells us that the life of a Christian ought to be marked primarily by thankfulness. We show our thankfulness to our creator by cultivating the word of Christ so that it might dwell in us richly. So now, does that mean Bible studies? Well, yes, but Paul actually tells us exactly how we cultivate the word in our heart. We sing. We sing, he says, 
teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So Bible studies are good. Personal quiet time is good. But the primary means in which we dwell richly in God's word is by singing one with another, singing uh, to one another. We, We sing psalms, we sing hymns, we sing spiritual songs. And so now we're arriving to Uh, verse 18, this very specific part of scripture where um, Paul is getting into our business. As as Tyler Hatcher said, he's he's beginning to meddle with our lives. Um, He's moved from speaking generally to all Christians and is now speaking specifically to individual groups of saints. But before we jump into his exhortation to wives and husbands, it's important to remember that these principles will only work... They'll only work if they are carried out by saints who are living like Christians. A wise man once said, if you want to be a good husband, you must first start with being a good Christian. If you want to be a good wife, a good daughter, a good employer, a good father, you must first start with living your life consistent with the whole counsel of God. If we aren't willing to cast off the old man with all of its degenerate behaviors and put on the new man of Christ and all of his tender mercy and love for one another and thankfulness, we will fail as husbands, we'll fail as wives, we'll fail as children and as fathers, and we'll fail as slaves and as masters. So remember all of Colossians when you read yourself into this text. And so let's jump into our text, and we're going to, we're going to look at these, uh, the next uh, three sections here. It's, uh, Paul start, first starts with wives and then husbands, then he talks about children and fathers, and then he talks about slaves and masters. And so let's start with verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. And I was thinking as um, we were getting ready to... Um, as we were uh, getting ready to start worship today, I was thinking that uh, I think it actually uh, less triggered into my mind when he said that Tyler Hatcher's preaching next week. There's a chance, I don't exactly know what he plans on preaching on, he might be at this exact section but in Ephesians. So you might get this sermon two, two weeks in a row. So, so anything I leave out, hopefully Tyler will uh, cover. Or maybe he'll preach on something entirely different. But, but um, this, is, this is, of course, a controversial passage. But it's important to remember... Paul is giving an apostolic command. This means when we read this passage, we are not hearing his opinion, but are rather hearing the very words, the very commands of Christ. Um, Sometimes uh, liberal Christian scholars want to say, well, this is just a Pauline thing. Jesus never taught this. But this is the words of Christ. That's what it means when we devote ourselves to the whole counsel of God, because it's all, if you have a red letter Bible, in a sense, Every letter should be read. The only reason that some Christians also want to fight against the verses like this is because we live in a culture and we're all products of our culture. We live in a culture that despises certain kinds of hierarchy. Not all hierarchy. Um, Women in power, well, that is historic. That's monumental. Men in power, chauvinistic patriarchy. So, so what, we've, what we've lived with then is a world in which egalitarianism, everybody's exactly the same. There is no, there is no differences in, um, in um, uh, rule or authority or abilities. Um, 
And so few things are as offensive to our modern ears in our culture as the clear commands, and there are many, as the clear commands of Scripture for wives to submit to their own husbands. But think about what the text is saying. Wives, submit to your own husbands. This text, does, this text is not chauvinistic. It does not call women to submit to men in general, but rather calls one wife to submit to the one husband that she has chosen. Now, this type of submission is, is glorious. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. It provides much-needed protection for vulnerable, for vulnerable women in every society. And Western societies, like ours, are no exception to this. Our women need protection. Uh, and this was true in the ancient world. For example, when Boaz, you think, think about the, the, um, the relationship between Boaz and Ruth in the romance of that book. Um, the, the culmination of that romance happens um, in the middle of the night. And Boaz finds Ruth at his feet in the middle of the night on the threshing floor. And she says to him, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This young woman was asking, was asking to be brought under his protection. And she placed herself at his feet to show that she was willing to submit to him and to come under his authority. So wives submitting to their own husbands gives a very real physical blessing of protection, but it also carries with it a spiritual blessing. Um, the wife here is told to submit to her husband in the same way she submits to Christ. Paul says, as is fitting in the Lord. Um, Paul has phrased this somewhat differently in Ephesians, but the idea is still the same. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Did you catch that? If you're a wife here, did you catch that? Your submission to your husband is directly related, directly related to your faithfulness, your obedience, and your submission to Christ. If you refuse to submit to him, you are in effect refusing to submit to Christ. Now, if this sounds hard, well, it's because it is. But again, I would encourage us to think carefully and not just simply reactively. It should come as a tremendous comfort to wives, especially those who struggle with fear of submitting to their husband's leadership. If you're a wife and you struggle with fearing having him in charge, what's going to happen if he's actually in charge? It's, it's, it's a comfort to know that their Savior uh, it's, it's comfort to, for you to know that Jesus has told you to submit unto him. He's told, Jesus has said, submit unto your husband as you submit unto me. And he has not called you to lead as he has called your husband. This means that your spiritual success, which is ultimately the, the highest level of success, that the spiritual success for wives is found in their submission, not in their leadership. And this certainly doesn't mean that women can't be gifted leaders, but rather that leadership is not their highest calling in this context, in the context of the family. This also means that wives who are gifted leaders must be especially on guard not to miss out on the spiritual blessing of submitting to your own husband as unto the Lord. There is a blessing there, and you can miss it if you happen to be a very gifted leader and your husband is not. 
Now, husbands in this passage are called to love their wives. We start with the one in this. There's a pattern. Uh, there's, you start with the one that needs to submit, and you go to the one who is in authority. And so husbands who are in authority in the family are called to love, to cover their wives with love. Uh, Paul expands on this in Ephesians 5 by stating that they should love their wives as Christ loves his church. Wow, husbands, are you, am I, really loving our wife as Christ loves his bride, the church? I would challenge you men um, who are married to ask yourself that question every single time you experience hard times with your wife. Am I really loving her as Christ loves his bride? If you're honest with yourself, the answer is either going to be definitely not or a highly qualified yes, but you're going to have to remember in your mind that you can do much better. This command to love her as Christ loves the church means husbands have a lifelong standard, the standard of Christ, the standard of perfection, and we will never fully reach that standard this side of glory. So husbands, may may I exhort you, you can always love her more. You can always lay down more of your life for her. You can always die to yourself first and give preference to her that that she might live. Paul also gives a a specific warning to husbands here. And he he says, don't be bitter towards towards them, towards your wife. Uh, And this warning exists because, not because wives can't be bitter towards their husbands, but because um, there exists in bitterness, there exists in husbands rather, a temptation, a besetting temptation towards um, bitterness towards their wives to experience this. And I think, I think one of the reasons why that is is because husbands very much see the differences in, in men and women. Husbands see the difference that God has placed between them and their wives, and often husbands can fail to embrace such differences as their own crown and glory. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians eleven seven 7, that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. This means that if man is the glory of God, that woman is the glory of glory. Kind of like the holy place and the holy of holies. It's like woman is the most glorious. She is the glorious one. So husbands, as you see her in her glory, don't be bitter against what you perceive to be weakness in that glory. She has been made differently than you on purpose, and her differences often are your crown and glory. She is the glory of glory, so embrace those differences and guard your heart against bitterness toward her. And then, of course, the responsibility to lead the household is upon the shoulders of husbands, and we can't forget that, so that Wives, your husband knows that the responsibility is on his shoulders. And so just as he has a responsibility to lead the household, the text here says that your responsibility is to submit to him just as if you were submitting to Christ. The responsibility of the husband in what he will be held accountable for is whether his leadership was Christ-like or not. Therefore, wives, you can rest in your submission to your husband, knowing that Christ can be trusted. That's who you ultimately are submitting to. He is just. If you submit to your husband as though submitting to Christ, then you will be justified in this good work, regardless of how good or bad your husband is at leading. 
Husbands likewise can rest knowing that as long as they follow after King Jesus, their elder brother, trusting in his wisdom and providence, he will cause them to stand even in their weakness and make them a strong leader. In verse 20 and 21, we move into children and fathers. It says, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So as I said earlier, here Paul establishes a pattern of addressing first those who are called to submission, followed by addressing those who have been placed in positions of authority. First he addressed wives and then husbands. Now he's addressing children, followed by fathers. And so children, this part is for you. Make sure you're paying attention, kids. Children, you are called to obey your parents in everything. And there's a reason for this. It actually does something, kids. You know what it does? It pleases Jesus. When you obey your parents, it pleases Jesus. How would you like to get, how would you like to have a ticket that you know this ticket will always make God happy? God's given that to you. Every time um, you obey your parents, you are making God pleased. Paul has promised that if you kids obey your parents in everything, not just when you feel like it. Jesus will be pleased. In fact, you're promised that if you obey and honor your parents, it will be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. You are promised these blessings and all, of, all you have to do, kids, is obey your parents faithfully. It's really easy, or I should say it's really simple, but it is hard. And kids, one day, last thing kids, one day you're going to grow up and leave home. And this promise will still hold true. You're not going to be required to obey your parents in exactly the same way, but you will still be expected to honor them even after they're gone. So then Paul moves and he starts to address fathers, and and we absolutely can, can extend this out to mothers as well, but Paul is specifically dealing with fathers in this. So everything he says to fathers applies to mothers too, but I'm going to focus on the fact that fathers are called out here for a reason. Fathers are called out as the ones unto whom children are showing obedience. And fathers are warned here not to provoke their children uh, and, and by provoking them, discourage them. And this is clear from other scripture passage that children must obey both of their parents. Um, we also know that fathers in particular often can have what might be called the Captain Von Trapp blindness. In the sound of music, the sound of music is uh, everywhere in our house right now. In the sound of music, we're introduced to Captain Von Trapp. uh, And and if you remember, he uses a whistle to control his children and they all march out and they're obediently standing in front of him. And and he's, you know, he's the captain. He's uh, he's, he's referred to as captain. Uh, And he was clearly uh, a man of order and he expected his children to behave at least in his presence. But this man, who produced seven beautiful children, when he was gone, these kids terrorized adults. These kids would sneak out of the house to engage in relationships that they had no business in. And each one of these children was deeply hungry for his attention and for his approval. See, Captain Von Trapp wanted the blessings that come with good children. Children are wealth. They are an incredible blessing. You should have lots of them, if you can, if the Lord blesses you with that. So he wanted the blessing that came with good children, but he didn't 
want to assume the responsibility to put in the blood, sweat, and tears required of every father. He wanted children who would obey him and honor him and make him look good, but he wasn't particularly interested in investing his own time in them. All that changed when Maria entreated him to see, to take off his blinders, to see that his children were desperate to know him. She opened his eyes to see that he was actually never home. His daughter was growing up without him even knowing her. His oldest son wanted to be a man, but no one was there to show him. Maria goes down the list of the children and described beautifully the discouragement each one of them were suffering due to his provocation. Fathers, if we want children who will honor us and obey us cheerfully, um, even into our old age, we must not succumb to Captain Von Trapp blindness and provoke our children unto discouragement by neglecting them or by being impossible to please. Tell your children that you love them. Look them in the eyes and tell them you're proud of them. Make them uncomfortable. It's really fun. (laughs) Take joy in your children, fathers, and they will take joy in you. And then finally, uh, Paul, Paul moves on to the relationship between slaves and masters. He says, Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And he says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. For you serve the Lord Jesus, for the Lord Christ. And then he says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Then he goes on to say, masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, again, Paul first addresses those who called to submit, um, the bondservants, and then he calls on masters who have been delegated this authority by their master in heaven. First, He starts with the one who's called to submit. He tells these slaves to obey their earthly masters in everything. And not just when the boss is looking, but from a heart of sincerity. And they're to do this because they fear God. Paul then gives additional guidance and encourages the slaves to do everything they are told heartily unto the Lord. So so do everything. Everything your, your master tells you to do, do this heartily as unto the Lord. And then they're promised a reward for such selfless service. And that is selfless service. Um, And and he says that you'll have a reward because actually you're going to be serving the Lord and not um, your earthly master. Um, Slaves are also warned not to do wrong even though they are in slavery. We oftentimes can think if someone is in a position um, where they are being oppressed that they have been given a ticket to do whatever they want. But, but Paul says, um, there is no partiality with God. If you do wrong, you'll be repaid for that. And then masters are commanded to give their slaves what is just and fair, since they too have a master in heaven. And as we read through this, it's, it's easy for us, and it's proper for us to change the context into our modern day and equate slave with employees and masters with employers or the boss. Um, that's totally appropriate to do, but we can't. If we do that and we don't even think about the relationship between slaves and masters, we'll miss the tremendous, how tremendously countercultural this command was. A theologian, R. Kent Hughes, writes 
um, about the time when Paul wrote this letter. He says, Paul's teaching here, uh, quote, Paul's teaching here was accompanied by a great amount of tension for several reasons. Primary was the amazingly vast extent of slavery and its dehumanizing nature. Ancient historians estimate that there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, or about half of the population. Because of this, um, work was considered below the dignity of slave-owning Roman free men. Practically everything was done by slaves, even doctoring and teaching. Ancient tradition dating back to Aristotle classified slaves as things, as living tools. So that was the mindset of slavery in the Roman world. It was, it was far worse than anything we have seen um, in, 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 modern, in modern day. There's still slavery even to this day. Of course, uh, America has our own history with slavery. But this was the worst of the worst. You, th- you have half of your population that are slaves. And so Paul exhorting masters to give their slaves equitable treatment was probably like trying to convince his readers that the sky was green and the grass was blue. It was unthinkable to give such preference to a slave, to this tool. Now Paul could have commanded um, all slave owners to set their slaves free, and to do so would have been consistent with the gospel of liberty. However, he doesn't do this. He doesn't do this because his desire is consistent between husbands and wives, fathers and children, masters and slaves. He wants us all to recognize that now, in the new creation, we are all one in Christ. When we put off the old man and put on Christ, the following will happen. This is what he said in chapter 3 of Colossians. He says, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. This reality, this reality that Paul was pushing these families and these cultures to, of unity amongst totally disparate people, can only come about, it's only possible through the working of the Holy Spirit and our adoption into the family of God. This is why it always fails when the secular world tries to, in, um, tries to apply justice. It, they always screw it up because they don't have the Holy Spirit, which is the bond of peace between all of us. Without a new heart, we will always bite and devour one another. Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and masters, we all can live in harmony if we are willing to mortify the flesh and put on Christ that we might serve others unto the Lord and not be served. Christ says, if you want to be greatest, you have to make yourself least. Uh, Paul continues here um, in verses 2 through 4. He says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. So Paul is exhorting these saints to prayer and always have their prayer be with thanksgiving. The highest form of prayer, uh, Luke, uh, Luke and Hank both did a wonderful job in their prayers today. The highest form of prayer is always doxology. It's always thanksgiving. 
Petitions are good. We, are, we should be giving our petitions. But we have been given tremendous blessings. And when we acknowledge those blessings to God in prayer, he uses that thankfulness to displace the wanton desires of our old man. Paul also uses this time to request prayer. So he says do it with thankfulness, but I also have a prayer request. Um, his, his prayer um, from the saints in Colossae is that doors would be opened so that he might be allowed to share the gospel. Um, what he called in, in chapter 1, verse 26, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to all his saints. So Paul, if you remember, Paul's in chains. Paul is um, under house arrest. He's probably got a Roman legion. Uh, chain, he's probably chained to a Roman guard. Maybe not a Roman legionnaire, but a, a Roman guard. Um, so he can't really go anywhere. And so the, the idea of doors being opened to him would be as, as spirit-infused as it comes because people would be coming to him. And Paul is asking for opportunities to share this mystery with the world, even though he is in chains because of his devotion to sharing this mystery. So he's going to keep on sharing this mystery, even though it put him in chains, and even though it will ultimately end in his martyrdom. He also asks them specifically to pray that he might make the gospel clear to his hearers, so that they might understand. Paul understands that this mystery that that we have to share with the world, it's not always easy to understand, and the hearers must understand the gospel in order to believe it. So he asks for the right words to be given to him so that whether he is preaching to a slave or Caesar himself, he would make the glorious gospel apparent to all who hear. And then finally, he says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, redeeming the time. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So Paul is, of course, getting ready to wrap up this letter. And so he exhorts us as saints who... based off of all of what he's just taught us, are now walking in harmony, right? We're actually obeying him. We're not just hearing it and walking away. We're actually walking in harmony in our families, in our workplace. So now that we're walking in harmony with others, to walk in wisdom towards non-Christians, towards those outside the faith. Uh, And I don't think he's necessarily saying that we always need to have an elevator-pitched gospel message ready to slip into every conversation uh, with every stranger we ever meet. But but he says redeem the time, make the most of every opportunity. We always need to be ready to share with people if God opens a door, if it's apparent. We need to always be ready to share with people the glorious, life-changing transformation that comes when we bow in reverence and love to King Jesus. 1 Peter 1.15 says, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Now both Paul and Peter are entreating us to be ready to answer those who ask. And they're entreating us to make sure that we're doing it with grace, with gentleness, with respect. And, he, and, and Paul even here says, make it delicious. He says, season it with salt so that people will want to ask more questions and learn more. And you will be able to know and understand how you ought to answer each one. If we just preach hellfire and brimstone on the, on the, on the sidewalk, um, we are not necessarily seasoning it with the kind of grace that will cause people to want to know more. 
And, and there's a place for all of that, but, but that's why he says, when we talk with outside, outsiders, try and make it delicious. Every person we encounter is an image bearer of God, and our desire should be similar to God's desire, that no one might perish. So as we conclude, we have seen that Paul wants us, as fellow saints, to live together in harmony. He wants us to recognize that even though prior to our conversions, there were many things that separated, us, that separated us from one another, now that Christ has come and the bond of the unity of the Spirit has come, we can now live in harmony as fellow saints in ways that would have been impossible before. Wives no longer need undermine their husbands, but can joyfully submit, knowing that they are submitting to the Lord. Husbands can love with tenderness and gentleness, knowing that they are called to love their wives as Christ loved his bride, the church. Children, you can obey in joy, knowing that you are bringing Christ joy, and you're storing up blessings for yourselves. Fathers, we can love and teach our children what it means to live as Christ lives, because we see our children as fellow heirs in Christ. Slaves, or in our, in our context, employees no longer need to only look out for number one, what's best for me, but can serve their master, their boss, with sincerity of heart, knowing that they are, in effect, slaves of Christ, who will give, and, and Christ will give them a reward for their faithfulness. Masters, employers, can treat our employees, can treat employees as equals because they know their master is also Christ. So when we live like this, the world is going to see our fruit. They are, the world's going to see our fruit, and they are going to want to know more as the Spirit leads them to us. And when they ask, we will answer them with wisdom and grace and the salty, savory goodness that comes from a life in Christ. This will all be possible because wisdom is justified by her children. When Christ rescues us from the domain of darkness and transfers us into the kingdom of Christ, we should celebrate, and then we should ask, how then? How should I then live? Paul has told us, put to death the deeds of the flesh, clothe yourself with the selflessness of Christ. When Jesus said in Luke 7.35, wisdom is justified by her children, he meant that wisdom produces good things. And even if you mock the wisdom, you can't mock the children she produces. In the same way, the life of every saint is justified by the fruit he or she produces. The world may mock us, and they will. They'll mock us and our faith. But we will be vindicated by the fruit of the Spirit that overflows from the abundance of hearts in Christ. Those who have been found in Christ are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. The waiting world desperately needs to see and hear such good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.